Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts, David, and my buddy Ian is on the other line, and he and I are glad to be doing another podcast. Speak for yourself. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes, no, always happy to be here. Very exciting week. So um, before we get into this week, uh, we do want to say a big thank you to Susan Tedeschi and to her PR people for setting that interview up and to all of you for listening. This was our second biggest week for downloads and Steve Gorman was number one. So uh, a big thank you to everybody and we got a lot of good feedback on that one. Yeah, I really appreciate everybody listening and, uh, you know, really appreciate Susan coming on. I mean, let's face it, you know, we're a... uh, you know, we're a, a newer program, and she was willing to, you know, take a chance on, on being our guest, and uh, I think that's great of her to do, and we really had a great time with her, and I'd love, like, you know, we had mentioned prior, I, I'd love to have her back, you know, when that Mad Dogs and Englishman film gets released, if it gets released, and, uh, you know, have a chat solely about that, because that's uh, hours of material right there. Yes, a big thank you to her, and, and Jared Delaney is the winner of our uh, Twitter contest for the uh, Signs album by the Tedeschi Trucks Band. So, Jared, uh, big thank you on that. All right, so this week's going to be a little a little different. The first person we're going to have on here is our buddy Steve Gleason, again, from the Amorkins, and it's a, a little segment that we're going to start having on more regular, every, maybe every four or five episodes or so. Steve's picks in in line with like Dick's picks from um, the Grateful Dead, and so um, we're gonna have Steve on, and he's gonna pick a show, and we're just gonna have like a ten or fifteen minute spot where we talk about a show and 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 the the set list and and the playing and everything on it. Uh, we thought that would be fun. Steve just has this like insane memory of Black Crow shows and set lists, but I mean he's seen over one hundred fifty shows, so I mean why wouldn't he? But so, uh, Ian, I think you're the one that actually came up with the idea for this. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, I really enjoyed doing the uh, the Fillmore episodes we did with Steve. And I think, like you said, he's got a real knack for remembering specific elements of the show. He is a musician. He does play in the Black Crows tribute band, the Americans, fantastic band. So he, you know, he comes at it from a musician's standpoint as well. And uh, I just thought it'd be interesting for him to uh, pick some shows he thinks are notable or iconic and kind of break them down. And we do that so and and you know when when we release an episode with a, a steve's pick segment in it we'll also put up some links to where you can find that show and, and give it a listen yourself and then we also have another guest after steve and we'll come back introduce that guest after uh the steve pick segment and now it's time for steve's picks special guest Steve Gleason of the Americans. All right, Steve. So the show that you have picked this week is uh, for your first show is going to be October the 16th, 1996, Syracuse, New York at the Landmark Theater. Why did you pick it? Well, there's a there's a myriad of reasons I really feel like the fall of 96, specifically October of 96, in my mind, if you're going to listen to uh, Black Rose bootlegs, that this is the zenith of of their ability. And first of all, I think we have to talk about Chris's voice and his phrasing at this time. I think his voice is as strong as it ever was, including High as the Moon. I think that his voice is so he's so easily able to slide into different registers without any kind of audible crack and hit everything strongly. His, and plus, I think when you get to a lot of the later bootlegs, his phrasing is all over the place. So if you're a guy that likes to sing along, or a girl, of course, that likes to sing along with these songs, it's incredibly hard to do in later tours because his phrasing is just like Bob Dylan's at some point. It's kind of all over the place. Um, and I think this is his strongest point 
for voice and phrasing, in my opinion. I think that the sets are designed in a way that they usually had a three three song encore. You looked at an hour and forty five minute set, and uh, they were they were generally structured in a in a in a way that you would either get you know my morning song or Thorn as a set piece on any particular night. Um, and again, we've spoken about this before. These set pieces, not unlike the Dead with you know China Rider or or Scarlet Fire. Here, uh, this is the same sort of kind of setup. And uh, usually got one one jam a night, but I really feel like the uh, 96 gets short shrift a lot of times because people seem to want to take these jams and call them, um, you know, deconstructionist or, or uh, very Grateful Dead-like. And I don't, in my opinion, a lot of them, especially the fall of 96, they're very Allman Brothers-y. I specifically selected this bootleg as my favorite, my favorite bootleg. First, the sound is wonderful. I think the mix on this boot, Ed's up front, so you can really hear Ed's, uh, all, all of his runs. And some on some things, they turn him down and you can't hear them. I think sometimes it's oppressive when he comes in on No Speak, No Slave. We don't have that here. But in a song like Blackberry, you can hear in the, in the verses a lot of stuff he's doing that you normally wouldn't hear. So the, the real reason I want to really, the thing I want to talk about here, it opens with a, a Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I think this is one of these songs that's um, divisive to a certain extent amongst the fan base. I've always considered it very Beatles-esque. I think it, it jams. It's got a really interesting solo. And God damn, the bass is good in this song. It really <laughs> is. You know, so it's always been one of my favorites. And I, I think the, like, the one-two punch, the two-slot on this tour... Um, was either dominated by Sting Me or or my, my maybe my favorite Black Crow song of all time, Tied Up and Swallowed. And here we have an absolutely ferocious version that the jam at the end is just as tight as a drum and has a uh, just a mean streak from the start. They're in it. And this is a Wednesday night. This is not a, a Friday in New York City. This isn't a you know, Saturday night in Boston. This is right. in the middle of a college town, in the middle of the week, and they come they come to play, you know. I'm always pleased when uh, you see Tied Up and Swallow in the set list anywhere. I, I definitely agree with you. The, the, the one-two punch of Nebuchadnezzar and Tied Up and Swallow it had, is, is fantastic. Well, and it, it signals that this is going to be a rock show. You know, traditionally, I always think of Tied Up and Swallowed as being either very late in the set list or an encore song. Interesting to see it. Like you said, that it was played in that number two slot on this tour a lot. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, it had been appropriate to open with that. I mean, it's the Three Snakes tour to begin with. That is a song that, honestly, listeners of this podcast have changed my mind on. I think if you go back and listen to Digital Kill when Ian and I did uh, Three Snakes, I wasn't the biggest fan of Nebuchadnezzar, but a lot of people have spoken about it kind of reverently. And so I've gone back and given it a given it another try, and uh, I, I don't think as negative of it as I used to. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's one of those songs that uh, you know you're you're either on the bus or you're not. And I <laughs> I love the uh, I love the descending bass line of this. I love the octaves that they play in it, and uh, I just think it's one of those tunes that that's very Beatles Beatles esque. And to Dave's point, this is going to be a rock and roll show. This is not a Sunday night service. This is not gospel-y. This is a rock show. There are some weaknesses, I think, in our downfalls, however you want to state that in here. I, I, Evil Eye in the, in the third slot. Evil Eye is one of these songs for me that is kind of a no-go. When it starts, I'm like, I, I just don't understand why you'd bring this in. I get it on a record if you want to explore that kind of thought. Jesus can't save you and all that. You got something to say. I understand it. But in the middle of this kind of show, it just doesn't make any sense to me. The center, kind of the centerpiece for the show, really, is what comes next. Now, I have never, to my knowledge, seen this on a set list. Black Moon Jam usually signals Black Moon Creeping is coming up. On this show, it's Black Moon Jam into my morning song, and then it's five or six songs later, we get Black Moon Creeping, which is very kind of dead, dead-esque to do something like that. And and like you said, this may be the best version of my morning song I've ever heard. So I know this is one of the reasons you picked this show. So we're ready to hear you uh, hear your opinion on that. 
Well, in my in my humble opinion, this is the and there are lots of candidates. I'm willing to listen to you know ten five ninety six in Chicago, Connecticut on ten twenty eight. Uh, there's a there's a, a bunch of candidates for the for the crown. But in my humble opinion, this is the premier version of this. First, the Black Moon Jam. This version builds so effectively and is so rocked out. Ford is just dominating the mix on this and. Everyone's following him, and it leads into a just beautiful version of Morning Song. This is like a 21-minute version that I know maybe bumps some people out. But for me, this is such an Almond Brothers-y take on, on, the, on the song. It is ferocious at the beginning. Chris's phrasing is wonderful in it, and the band is just tight, 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 tight. And so they build it through the, the middle jam part. And this is one of the few examples I can think of that you can hear on the boot. The entire room is clapping along in the middle as they break the jam down. I don't. I haven't heard that that much out of a crow's bootleg before. So the whole room is into it. And when they build it and come back in, the, the Ford sustained note on the sunrise part, this is like my favorite thing in the entire world. Damn. It's what I love about music and what, what, what has attracted me to this band for 30 plus years. And I really think, you know, this is one of these boots. And, and as we move forward and we're, we're reviewing these boots, you should all, all remember that these are available on nugs.net. Any of you can get them. You can download one, I think, an MP3 for $4.95. This is absolutely 100% worth it. After this, we, we run into uh, just an absolutely beautiful and at this point in in uh the fall of 96 they were absolutely killing sister luck and this is a unbelievably good version and you know this is one of those tunes that i think is incredibly underrated in the catalog i love hearing it every time it comes on it's it's just a beautiful version here ford is killing it but this is where it's like there are very few frontmen that sound as good as this at this point I always love hearing Sister Luck. I think it's an underappreciated song in their catalog. I know we get tired of hearing, you know, Twice as Hard, Jealous Again, Angels, Hard to Handle. This and Stare It Cold are, are two gems off of Shake Your Moneymaker that uh, I don't think get played enough. And I, I don't hear people talking enough about this song. I mean, there's a lot of soul in this. Chris really is just singing his heart out on it. And uh I, I don't understand why it's been so overlooked by a lot of people in the fan base. Well, and it's a song I don't think at this point he can get to effectively in a vocal sense without them dropping the key. And at this point in 96, boy, could he. And boy, is it good. So next up, you have uh, Shake Your Money Maker. I don't know. This is for me, like, I'm going to go get a beer kind of song. Uh, <laughs> Agreed. I've never had, Unless there's a sit-in and, like, I've seen him do it with Yorma Kalkinen and or different people, and it's great, but not a big deal for me. I don't know if you guys love this or hate it. Uh, a skipper. It never did a whole lot for me. I mean, it's a it's a good, solid old blues-type tune, but yeah, you're right, Steve. Uh, a sit-in is, it makes this one much better. Yeah, exactly. So we then come to uh, Ballad and Wiser, and again, we've spoken about this on previous podcasts. Uh, I want to I wanna throw up the uh, caution flag when these two aren't connected with the, with the jam in the middle. And uh, here, this this particular version, when they get to the, it's it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Ed is absolutely on fire in this. Uh, but when it breaks down in between, and they get to just the piano, this is so beautifully built. This jam by Ed, Steve, and Johnny. Uh, this is like a a a masterclass in dynamics and function. They build this up into this this beautiful guitar tapestry. It's just wonderful. Johnny pushes. If you're if put on the headphones and hear how Johnny pushes this jam so beautifully into the crescendo and backs himself out in a way that's just so well done. Um, and we are on into Wiser, and it's really you know it's 16 minutes of of, of uh, just sheer beauty and power. I just feel like, you know, you have two set pieces here in this in this set that are just so well done. The band is firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a set list like this, like on paper, this is a great set list because it's very varied. But yeah. it isn't until you get to the actual performances that you realize how much a show like this, this one in particular, just goes that much 
further past the the high water mark. You know, like it's 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 this is really a a lot of very special performances of a lot of very classic songs in the to the fan base. You know what I mean? Right. Agreed. Agreed. I think you know. Again, they're pushing three snakes. The under the mountain that they play here with the the this the swell from the organ to start it off is beautiful. I, I love Under a Mountain. I, I love the drug imagery of it. I love the debauchery of it. I'm never upset to hear it. In fact, I always want to hear this song, no matter what. It's one of my favorite album openers. The the Crows have put out some good album openers, but this one that you have a hard time making an argument it's not the best. Yeah, you know, I, I, I that's a discussion for a different day because that's that's hard. <laughs> um Blackberry's one of these tunes again that I uh it doesn't do it for me for whatever reason. It dies. It always dies. They really stopped playing it after this after this tour. I don't think you can find that many versions of it after ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah, no, I think it became more of a of a rarity type thing. Like every once in a while it'd pop in, but not not with any frequency. No. Uh okay. And then the version here of Willen. Again, usually an encore, uh, although in the fall of 96, they were playing at mid-set. Sometimes they'd give you Girl of the North Country, but a lot of times you got Willen here. And uh, uh, I just think Willen is one of those tunes that they were born to do. That they, I think they, I, I love Little Feet, but I really think the Black Crows own this. I take it every single time, no matter what. Yeah, and like you said, traditionally we think of this as an encore, that that's one of the interesting things about this set list is some of the song placements are not what we traditionally think of. Yeah, I'm with you. I like honestly, I, I like the crows playing it better than Little Feet. I know that may be blasphemous to some people, but I feel like it's it's at this point it's their song. They 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 oh they do that to a lot of songs, uh, but this one uh, in particular really becomes their tune. Right, and then we get a little weird here. I think Hotel on this is in a strange spot. It's usually not at the end. It's usually kind of up front in the three or four slot um again another song i'll take any single time they play it hypnotized by your rotten behavior has been in my vernacular (laughs) for such a long time uh black moon creeping is a tune that i just didn't i wouldn't expect if i was there i'd be shocked uh you know we we talked about this is a really good version of it uh shout out to to my bandmate ermine in in the uh americans who kills that note when they come back into the gospel-y part God, I love the end of this song. I love the end of this song. You know, oh, it's 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 great. I mean, but speaking of, to songs that you wouldn't expect, I don't expect the next track as a, as a set closer. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yeah, you know, uh, a week later in um, Durham, same thing. It came at the end of the set. How much for your wings is a song, uh, and I know a lot of people aren't going to like this that I kind of get bummed out when I see it on the set list because I just think that the way they play it live with this kind of deconstructionist kind of long-winded jam that kind of just fades out is very dead-like. And though I love The Grateful Dead, I really don't like this version of it that much. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. And it's odd not to see this without its its cousin, uh, Bring On, Bring On. Which, by the way, that I'll take any single, every single time that that comes up. So uh, you have a, a just a wonderful encore here in my mind. Feathers is the most requested song uh, that we get in the Amorgans. I adore Feathers. How does Feathers not make a record? Yet Downtown Money Waster does. It makes zero sense to me. Feathers <laughs> is a nasty, nasty-ass song that takes its time with build and power and dynamics and it has every single thing that you'd like as far as a uh, mid-tempo, powerful song. I just, every time Feathers comes out, I'm thrilled. This is a great version. This, this is one of my favorite songs to hear played. It's just dirty, grimy. It's everything you want, it, want in, a, in, a, in a song like that. And first song on the, if I'm, if I'm at the show and I hear that, I'm kind of thinking this may be the only song we're going to get in the encore. But it's not the case. Uh, I think this version of Jealous again is very straightforward, but it's it's the it's the tune I think for me that I first went, wow, the Black Crows. That sounds like you know 1972 Rolling Stones to me. You know, fan every time it comes on. I don't care if people are bored by it or not. That that outro is gold. 
I mean, it is it is straightforward here, but it's kind of cool in this encore because this encore essentially is uh, a rarity, a hit, and a really cool cover, and that's that's a that's, that's a right. trifecta. I love their cover of Happy. I love the fact that all th- this was the first time I ever knew that Ford sang. The first time I saw Happy a week later, <laughs> when he came out with you know the Learjet verse. I love Happy. I don't understand why they. Uh, why they drop the key and play it in A. I have no idea why they do that and don't do it in B. Chris can handle it at this point. That said, uh, it's a small, small thing, but uh, I, I think they, they, they murder this. I love Rich's singing on the uh, Never Took Candy from Strangers verse. Who doesn't like Happy? I, I just think, you know, when you look at this particular boot, it's got something for every taste in my mind. And if I'm trying to introduce somebody to the band, and they're like, all right, I'll give your I'll give your hour and forty minute listen, and we'll see where we are. This is the one I give them. For me, this is a ten out of ten bootleg. Now, Steve, let me ask you, just as a guy who who went to ninety six shows, um, I noticed on Crow's Base that uh, God Street Wine opened up a lot of these shows, and I'm not too familiar with them. How were they as an opener? They were good. I didn't know I didn't know that many songs by them. Their last their last night was a week later gotcha. in UNH. Because Chris and eventually we'll do that bootleg on here. He's like, look, uh, we're playing this for this is their last night with us and they want to hear this. And they played happy. Government Mule came in the next night in Boston. So I I was much more into that idea. I wish I paid more attention because, you know, they're one of those those bands that people are are like, look, uh, this was a hip band. I don't know why you didn't go in and pay attention, but I didn't. (laughs) You know, just like I saw Wilco on AM at the Horde Festival, and I it, it didn't occur to me they were ridiculous. A band know. I've never seen live, uh, regrettably. So. Steve, uh, this was great. Great first time. Um, we're going to make this a uh, recurring segment every couple of weeks. We'll have Steve back on. Much appreciated, my man. Keep up the good work. So that was Steve's uh, first version of uh, Steve's Picks. We appreciate him doing that. And our guest this week is uh, Matt Wake. And Matt is a uh, music journalist. He writes for AL.com. He's done stuff for Guitar World. He came up on my radar because he's good friends with a guy named Greg Renoff, who is an author uh, and has written a couple of Van Halen-centered books. Uh, the first one about the early, early beginnings of Van Halen. It's a really, really good book that uh, I highly recommend. He then wrote another book about the legendary producer Ted Templeman, which came out a couple months ago. So I've, I've met him. I've met him a couple of times. Uh, he's always at the uh, Nashville Rockin' Pod. Got to know him a little bit. And he said, hey, do you know Matt Wake? And I'm like, no, he goes, he's a massive Black Crows fan. So he hooked us up with him. Matt and I uh, became friendly and uh, asked him if he wanted to come on. And uh, we kind of got a little bit of a perspective from somebody that's a music journalist on the Black Crows from him. Yeah, absolutely. Great guy. Great interview. Had a lot of fun with him. And, uh, you know, we do have to kind of apologize to him slightly up front on this one because, unfortunately, due to some scheduling for some other uh, interviews and things, uh, you know, notably like Susan Tedeschi and some other things. We unfortunately had to delay the release of his particular episode, but it's a fantastic episode, a real good chat. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. Yeah, so we do apologize to him for that because uh, one of the things he talks about is an upcoming article about Guns N' Roses that he did for Guitar World, where that's obviously out. You can go and find it, and uh, you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matthew B. Wake follow him on there he posts a lot of uh fun stuff he does a lot of stuff like pictures of uh, different bands shirts that he that he's wearing and he does um some just interesting like polls and things like that he's a good follow uh, a big thank you for matt to come for coming on we had a good time with him it's just kind of a it's just us chatting like if we were at a bar drinking beer there's no specific theme or anything it's just us talking about the black crows so uh all right everybody here's our interview with matt
All right, Ian, we're uh, we're really excited this week to have our, our next guest. He is a uh, music journalist. He writes for AL.com, and he also has stuff in Guitar World, and I believe I saw Rolling Stone, and, and we'll get into all those uh, magazines here in a second, but uh, we're really honored to have uh, Matt Wake on with us. Matt, how are you? I'm okay, David. Hey, Ian, how's it going, guys? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. So uh, we talked about uh, kind of who all you write for. Um, how did you... How did you choose this career path and how did it come to be you know what uh for a while i pursued a career in playing music you know uh a few years into that you know hitting 30 you know the crows didn't weren't calling for me to step in for mark ford or oddly free so uh you know and at a certain point that stuff's fun to change but if you don't hit a certain level of success you start thinking well, you know, maybe I need to get the plan B rolling. And uh, my girlfriend at the time said, hey, you know, a ton about music, you know, because probably like you guys, always read the liner notes, always, you know, uh, just nosing around for the in between the crack stuff. And she was like, you know, you know, know a lot about music. You should write about it. And uh, when I moved back to Alabama, I ran into a friend who I had a lot of English course. I met, minored in English at University of Alabama, and she was working for the Alt Weekly here. And she encouraged me to start writing for them. Did that, and that led to work with uh, dailies, and then eventually uh, music writing stuff, freelancing for uh, you know bigger and bigger entities. It's like anything else; you uh, you know just build stuff up, and one thing connects to another. You started off there, and you've—I mean, I was—you said you've you've had stuff published in like Rolling Stone and, and Guitar World and Billboard. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So my big break was when I uh, was writing for a uh, weekly entertainment tab for the Greenville News in South Carolina, which was a uh, is a Gannett property. Gannett owns USA Today, and at one point, I think around eighty-five newspapers. But at the time, they also had this uh, nationwide network of kind of like an online alt-weekly network called Metromix. And the national music editor, a guy named Andy Herman, uh, awesome editor, awesome dude, connected with him. He would use some of my stuff nationally for, you know, not just in Grievo, but like New York, Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, whatever. And so that was kind of a break. It's all about getting these little opportunities to go the next click up. And eventually, uh, Andy uh, became the music editor at LA Weekly in Los Angeles. And uh, he kind of uh, sent me an email. I, as I remember it, kind of like we're getting the band back together. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was very kind and gave me an opportunity to write for LA Weekly extensively. Between those two gigs, I wrote some for Paste magazine. That's uh, who I interviewed Rich Robinson the first time for for a piece on Mick Taylor from the Rolling St- Stones. But in uh, LA Weekly, a ton of cool stuff. Uh, you know, like uh, I'm a big fan of all that '80s hard rock that came out of there. But also, you know, the Crows have a rich legacy there. Uh, no pun intended. You know, from Chris's, <laughs> Chris's time living in LA to you know, Mark Ford coming from, you know, Southern California. And uh, one of my favorite things I wrote actually for LA Weekly is a lot of cool Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue stuff. But like uh, I got to do a story on Mark and Rich on how they were just this great tandem. It's when they were doing the Magpie Salute at first. And, uh, you know, because I'd interviewed Rich a couple of times, Chris a couple of times. And, but Mark, if, you know, those are like the, uh, you know, kind of the even the casual fans who know the Crows know those two. But the, you know, the people who are nuts about the Crows, you know, know people like Mark Ford or Eddie Harsh or, you know, stuff like that. So that it was so cool getting to talk to him and hear about like uh, one of the coolest. And this didn't make it into the story, but I asked Mark, you know, who are some, you know, because people think about Mark and are like, okay, he obviously loves loves Hendrix and Stevie Ray, and uh, I was like, who are some guitar players that people wouldn't guess that uh, you're have inspired you and influenced you? And he was like uh, Richie Blackmore uh, from Deep Purple, 
and uh, um, uh, the other one I think was uh, Richard Thompson, kind of the folk rock guy. But uh, yeah, so that was cool. And uh, so eventually got to write for uh, Rolling Stone a couple of things. Uh, uh, very cool music editor there named Hank Schemer gave me the chance to write a story uh, when kind of all the flack was coming with Greta Van Fleet. Oh, they're so terrible. These 18-year-old kids are playing Led Zeppelin type music. I mean, it's like terrible. What a horrible thing to happen. <laughs> uh, you know, it, to me, it always, I was, my, I, I was thinking like, you know, okay, it's okay for people, a zillion bands to copy Velvet Underground. It's okay for a million people to copy the Pixies, but uh, it's so horrible when they, you know, obviously listen to Plant, Page, Jones, and Bonham. So I, the band that I thought of immediately as a predecessor to this, in a different lane slightly, was the Crows. So I talked to Steve a lot, Steve Gorman, who's awesome. Also got to talk to, uh, which, you know, Crows, nutsos like us, the name George Draculius means a lot to us. Oh, yes. And George was so cool. It had some great stories. He could. He told me like the first time he ever played. Uh, I think it was Faces for Rich. All this cool stuff. And even at the at the end of the interview, he was like, "Well, what are the good bands around Alabama or where you live or in Muscle Shoals?" Or uh, he was just a super cool guy. I mean, like, and Billboard. Uh, the stuff I've done for them. One was on what. Uh, because as a freelance person, you're always trying to – the staff writers are going to get the fastball assignments, the stuff that's right down and obvious, and they're – you know, they should. So you're trying to think of angles that nobody thinks of. So uh, the pitch – I the first one I ever got from uh, Billboard was what all can rock stars write off on their taxes? So like <laughs> Alice Cooper can write off his snake, all kinds of stuff, uh, guitars, all that stuff. Uh, the second thing I did for them, I uh, got to interview Dickie Betts uh, when Capricorn, uh, the studio in Macon, was kind of rebooting. Dickie has this rep as being, you know, I was like, God, is he going to reach to the phone and punch me? Like, because <laughs> he kind of had this bare, you know, uh, bare knuckle kind of hard nosed Southern dude, but he was a, a sweetheart. And uh, it was really special getting to talk with him. And uh, um, my staff job here for AL.com, which is involves writing for the website for Birmingham News, Huntsville Times, Mobile Press Register. It, 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 I get to do, do some cool stuff. I interviewed Chris first time for LA Weekly, but the second time was for my staff job at AL.com when he was getting as the crow flies together. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, people, you know, were interested in hearing him sing those songs again. And he was interested in talking about it and, you know, talking about drugs and Jimmy Page, not like doing drugs with Jimmy Page, but like uh, <laughs> he he was in rare form. Uh, I, I hung out with Chris one time backstage at the Ryman at the As the Crow Flies uh show but maybe we shouldn't talk about that <laughs> <laughs> now it's it's interesting you bring up you know uh, in a sense meeting these people when you're working with them isn't it such a relief when you do meet them that you're like oh thank god they're not an asshole you know like it, it would shatter your i remember when i because I, I i did a, a bit of uh, freelance writing myself and i did a few things with mark ford and the first time i spoke to him I was so relieved that he was a cool guy. Like you were saying, he's just very down to earth and you know, yeah. you can talk to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mark's very down to earth and, you know, for, a, you know, he's a little spacey and creative, but he's, a, you know, an earthy guy and nice and, you know, I mean, but good God, what a guitar player. Oh, phenomenal. I mean, just unreal. And yeah, uh, I've met Chris. He was super cool to me. Uh, Steve Gorman, uh, never met him, but, obviously talked to him a time or two and um just uh he's just a he's a straight shooter super nice guy so i'm curious i'd like to ask you guys a question sure uh, if you were a point like for someone who knows the crow's kind of obvious stuff 
and they have generally good taste, but they just happen to know like uh, maybe Remedy, Angels, um, Jealous Again, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Where do you point them next? Whether it's something obscure, some of the weird OB sides, or do you send them to like say uh, a certain bootleg or to you know where do you send them next? If if I had somebody that was like, hey, I'm into Remedy, Twice as Hard, that kind of stuff. I play exit for them. But then, like, if I think about, um, hey, this person, you know, is a little more, probably, if if I know they're a little more open-minded musically, I go to, like, Girl from a Pawn Shop, uh, Under a Mountain. And Ian and I are both, we're kind of the oddball here. We think there's a lot of good songs on Lions. Uh, There's some stinkers on there for sure. But, like, songs like (laughs) Midnight from the Inside Out. Um, yeah, that's a good one. But I think it just all depends on like, like if you took somebody that's just really into hard rock, I'm gonna go with Exit. But if somebody yeah. that's like kind of like me, like I like hard rock, but also like widespread panic, you know, and stuff like that, I'd probably go like Under a Mountain, Girl from a Pawn Shop, um, which I'd always go to. What about you, Ian? I, I honestly, uh, in my opinion, if I if somebody that was casual fan, like you were saying, knew the hits and things like that, I'd probably just hand him over a copy of Amorica and say, let's, let's chat in an hour, you know, <laughs> and then we'll go from there. Yeah. I think that would, that's the kind of the, cause my personal favorite record is three snakes and one charm, but that's, that's not for everybody. So I think, yeah. I think Amorica, you know, kind of really is, is their most solid record in terms of just the straightforward rock stuff. And it really is the culmination of everything before it, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I've always said, if an alien came to me and said, who are the black crows? I give them wiser time, thorn in my pride, and my morning song. When I talked to Chris, uh, I guess the second time I interviewed him, I, and I've always thought uh, "Thorn in My Pride" is the most Black Crows Black Crows song there is. And I asked him if he thought that, and he was like, "Yeah, probably so." And you mentioned uh, "Girl from a Pawn Shop," uh, you know, uh, being uh, music uh, weirdos like us, like I'll think of things like. Who would be an awesome, well-known artist to cover kind of a, you know, not Remedy or Angels, because that would be kind of like an obvious move. But I always thought Prince could do Girl from a Pawn Shop really cool. He would would nail that Mark Ford song. That is a great uh, take on that, and I never would have occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. That would be be cool. But lyrically, it's odd enough for for Prince to have done it, too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, another thing I told Chris was, Hey, thanks for teaching me the word expatriate, you know, man. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so I learned that from Chris too. So, yeah. <laughs> what what are kind of some of your favorite Crows albums and songs if you had to kind of rank some of them? Yeah, you know what? Uh I don't know if this is obvious or not, but the the uh High in Houston bootleg mm-hmm. is man, just a whirlwind and the High as the Moon tour. I liked so Shaker Mountain Maker came out when I was a senior in high school, uh, and I liked it a lot. And I saw them open for Robert Plant, and they were good. Chris was like crawling on the stage. They did a song called Miserable that never came out. Right. But then I saw them at uh, High as the Moon. They're headlining, had third row tickets, which is a different animal from being a little further back. And to see a band that was all about what I liked but in their prime – this isn't like seeing the Rolling Stones on Steel Wheels or Page and Plant. Like, these guys, they are living the life. They're not just singing about the life. They're living the life. Bubbles coming down before the first song, the crazy light curtain. You know, uh, Chris, I didn't know this until I read Steve's book, but the the move he would do on uh, uh, No Speak, No Slave was the opener uh, for that right. tour. Uh, and there was at one point, Right before the guitar, he came out with shades, and right when the guitar solo started, he threw off the shades. I was like, wow, what a moment. <laughs> and then I read in Steve's book that, that Pete Angelus had like totally devised this moment. Yeah, that made me love the Crows. When I go back and watch like YouTube videos, like, I always go back to that 92, 93 era. Like, one of my favorite ones is when they did Spring Break. They do four songs on it. Um, but... To me, 92, 93, the opener with No Speak, No Slave, you take that, you give it to somebody and say, this is the definition of rock and roll. 
like, like you know, one time somebody asked Keith Richards if they hadn't called it rock and roll, what would they call it? He said they would call it Chuck Berry. Well, if you ask me, like, what what is rock and roll? It's that. And I think, Chris, you know, Steve talks about it in that book. He kind of slacked off toward the end of 93 with the showmanship. Um, I've always said that, that in that time frame, I mean, he was neck and neck with, like, 72 Mick Jagger. And if you watch, like, the Pink Pop uh, performance during, like, uh, the Thorns Progress order, he's dancing like a, like a madman. Yeah, you know, and and that kind of went away after a while, and 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 at times, at times, you know, he would he would poke his head up, and we would see that from time to time, but largely it was gone after that. And I really enjoyed all that. I thought it brought a lot to a lot to the the concert. It was fun as hell to watch, and you know, it's uh, people say this a lot, but you know, it's that exchange of that energy loop, mm-hmm. you know, between the stage and the people watching it. Um, and the, a cool thing about the crows and what made them so fun to obsess over was, you know, uh, it was a band where there was bootleg stuff, all the cool B sides, even going back to, you know, the first record, you know, there were some cool weight and guilty, I think was from that era. Uh, and then of course, like, uh, uh, darling of the underground press. And then all, th- I always thought, and I don't know why they don't do this, but, always thought a great thing for them to put out would be a vinyl double vinyl of all the b-sides and like unreleased stuff we want to hear you know like exit and the other new orleans new orleans stuff right mm-hmm. right uh, i think that would just be a really cool piece collection compilation and i think would give insight to why some even though some people you know the casual listeners that left, you know, maybe with Amorca and certainly by Three Snakes. Mm-hmm. But the people, who, why the people like us who stayed with them, stayed with them because they were just there's something about them that's just they're they're obsessible. I don't know if that's a yes. word, <laughs> but there there there's a lot to obsess over there. Well, I don't know if you've noticed on Twitter. They even have tweet have sent out a couple of things about B sides in the last couple of weeks. You know, their Twitter is obviously managed by Live Nation or somebody that's there to promote. And I thought it was, you know, they're very calculated now with what they put out. Like all the pictures only have Chris and Rich in them. They don't have yeah. you know, other band members. I can't think that that was put out just willy nilly without it meaning something. If you unloaded the vault with, I mean, you know, properly mixed exit, miserable, bitter, bitter, you know, e- everything that you can think of and, and released a show or two, I mean, I'd easily pay five, six hundred dollars for that, like a big a vinyl uh, box set, you know, kind of like the Stones just did. You know, uh, I, I would definitely do that, but I just don't think we're going to get it. I think there is a market for it. I mean, look, Gene Simmons just put out that vault yeah. collection and, and, you know, people will buy that. And that's, you know. That's nowhere near, you know, the the caliber, at least in my opinion, of uh, what a a Black Crows. Something. Yeah, Gene, Gene Simmons isn't. Similar. Gene Simmons isn't isn't writing exit. No, the only <laughs> thing he's got going for him, in my opinion, is he's got those demos with the Van Halen brothers in that vault thing. I like Which to hear that. Cool. If you haven't heard them, I have not, but uh, I'd love to. Yeah, I would too. Uh, but yeah, I don't think we're going to get that, and it's that kind of that's one of the frustrating things about this band is. There's so many things they could do to ingratiate the the fan base that has just stuck with them. You know, I mean, I've I've seen them a bunch of times. I'm sure you have. Ian has. I've probably bought every album four or five times in various formats. You know, I have like a million T-shirts. Yeah. Um, you know, I go to liveblackcrows.com and download shows all the time. It's just frustrating because... I mean, there's so much. There's so much fun to follow, like you said, and you can easily get obsessed with them. And there's this this carrot that's constantly dangling out there, you know. And like, I'm just like, give us exit, give us exit, you know. And uh, <laughs> when that Lost Crows compilation came out, think of how excited everybody was. When I think of the bands that have left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, some of the ones that come to mind for me are Oasis. They have a lot of great B sides. And then I think about Radiohead. Radiohead has a lot of good unreleased and B-side stuff. Um, can you think of another band that has as much, though, as The Crows that's like quality, quality material? Uh, well, not a band, but Prince. 
uh, a lot of his B-sides, like Erotic City, and uh, he has and obviously a lot of Vault stuff, and I, they're going to start putting that out now. And uh, I guess like the Miles Davis thing is coming out with this uh, Sign of the Times reissue. Another band that I think has, has a ton of stuff in the vault that they're not letting out is Van Halen. I mean, since we've talked about Van Halen already this evening, I mean, there's a whole yeah, possibly second record's worth that they did with Gary Sharon right there. There's a ton of stuff they did in the early days with Roth. That's it. I mean, obviously, because they did a whole the, – the different kind of Truth album they did with Roth. There's all reworked stuff that was yeah. sitting in their vault. And, I mean, even Wolfgang Van Halen has said, like, we have all this stuff in here. Like, it would be great to, you know – put some of it out but that's that's something i'd love to get a a glimpse into you know <laughs> oh yeah even like uh you know uh the prime early roth era live stuff come on man i've heard some of that uh audio and it, uh, the early stuff is scorching i don't care you know yeah dave isn't freddie mercury but you know at a, up to a certain point he was pretty fucking good uh till the day i die David Lee Roth will be a top for me. I love that guy. It's, a, it's so much fun. And, you know, when he, he – Dave is a very, very smart guy from anyone who – like Ted Templeman talks about this a ton. And sometimes very smart people outsmart themselves. And I think D- Dave sometimes does that with his live vocal melodies a little bit. It's like maybe he's bored with doing, you know – you know jamie's crying and so he does some weird um uh ricky ricardo thing but like uh, (laughs) i don't know who else unreleased stuff neil young he just released an album that was quote unquote been lost for 40 years hey matt there's there is one thing kind of random thing i wanted to ask you since you obviously make a living uh writing about music and you don't have to spill any names or anything but you remember the whole war paint maxim review controversy Yes, I do. Is that more common than we think, or you think that was an anomaly? I think that was an anomaly. I think you probably get a lot of in this kind of as things went more online and uh, uh, in the kind of blog uh, sort of blogosphere, you probably get people who listen to an album one time on their earbuds on their laptop and make some grand judgment on it. And now that you bring up War Paint, that is a pretty strong album that most people don't talk about. There's some good stuff on there. And I remember that tour, some of those songs being very effective live. Um, but yeah, I would say that's an anomaly. So let's uh, let's ask you this. did you Are you going to the reunion tour? Do you have tickets? I did have tickets to the Birmingham show. I'll be honest. I got refunds to all my shows, man, because straight up, I'm not sure concerts are going to happen in 21 either, and uh, I can always rebuy the tickets. And frankly, you know, uh, with uh, I mean, no one cares because I'm not famous. But you know, uh, we have furloughs <laughs> at my company. We have pay reductions, wage reductions during the pandemic to you know keep people from getting laid off, which is much better than that. Right. So that money's worth more in my bank account than in my. Uh, desk drawer uh, in a rectangular um, ticket a piece of paper but uh, do you guys I, I, but I was excited about it. It, it, it I mean you know I, I got some tickets further in the back and they were like 40 bucks yeah I, I mean not having Gorman there and is it going to be as good without Steve fuck no but Am I going to – I love the Black Crows. Am I – and they come within an hour of me on a Friday? Again, I'm going to go see it. I I agree. Uh, You know, the the Black Crows to me are, you know, uh, Chris, Rich, and Steve. I mean, that's – so Steve will be missed. I mean, I was excited to go to it. I ended up – I did buy one of the VIP-type packages. It was the lowest end of it, though. Uh, It it didn't involve the meet-and-greet it was just a you know a, a seat closer up, and you got like a couple like a commemorative book or something signed by them, and and I, I was looking forward to it. I still retained my tickets. I still have them because it's actually scheduled for the exact same weekend, like just a year later. I I, I didn't see a reason to um, get a refund, only because I know I'll be going. You know, so yeah. uh, I forked out an arm and a leg. I had a uh, second row dead center 
VIP meet and greet for the one in Arkansas. And you can wow. you can appreciate this, Matt. Uh, I chose the one in Arkansas because it's going to be up near Fayetteville in the mountains, and it'd be a little bit cooler than standing at Oak Mountain uh, <laughs> Amphitheater in uh, in in Birmingham uh, yeah. in the summer. But uh, actually, I got my re- I got my refund, and um, I think what I'm going to do is just wait closer and probably get the Birmingham show and the Atlanta show uh, if I had to make a weekend out of it. Um, you know, I, 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 if Chris and Rich are making music together and playing together, I'm going. But I do think, and I've said it on here before, you know, people say, oh, you know, they don't have Ford or Luther or, or anybody like that. I'll be honest with you. I think the thing that people are going to see the most difference in is Gorman not being there. Uh, yeah, but I do. I think it's smart to do the Shake Your Money Maker because it's a very accessible album. It's one that four million or seven million or however many people bought, and so even if they lost touch and they can say, hey, I can get, you know, I might not get the meet and greet or juicy seats, but, you know, I remember these songs. I like them. Hell, I want to go there and have a night out. I, I would just initially I don't know if it was like some kind of just random online chatter, but and it's probably completely false. But when the rumor was about them, Rich and Chris doing this there was like, oh, they're in Nashville recording songs that are very Shaker Moneymaker-like. And to me, I always, you know, and they kind of tried to be like the new, new Aerosmith, Columbia, and um, John Kalodner had them try to be the new, new Aerosmith for By Your Side. But that's different than uh, Shaker Moneymaker was more earthy. I know a lot of people, it's cool to not like Shaker Moneymaker, but I love it. There's some great songs on there. It's a first album. They're hungry. Uh, it was totally something different. And, you know, uh, I, I would love if they, and they kind of, on some of the stuff on uh, Daughters of the Revolution, I think kind of touched on that vibe a little bit again, but I would love it if they would come out with a some uh, a new album that was stripped down basic you know not too like trippy or and i've i've enjoyed the trippy stuff but to me sometimes obviously those guys are very smart and sometimes very smart people play hide and go seek from what they're best at i agree with you i think it would be fun to do that put that out and just have a a straight up rock record and then We've talked about here, they obviously they have one shot at this Shake Your Money Maker reunion tour as far as like selling big numbers. Like you yeah. can't you can't go back to that well a second time. Well, I don't want them to get in the rut of let's play a whole album tour. Like I think a lot of bands do that when they don't have anything else to do. The Crows, I think, could, could still, you know, do do good business and, and play this, you know, the random set list like we like. But if they had to do Southern Harmony do theaters, 2,500-seat 20, theaters, and get Ford and Gorman back and Sven. <laughs> I mean, it would be I, – I, I don't – Matt, going back to what you had mentioned uh, just pre- – you know, a lot of – you know, it's, it's cool to hate uh, Shake Your Moneymaker. And I never really hated Shake Your Moneymaker. I just think it, it kind of pales in comparison to what followed it. Yeah. And it's not as representative of what the band is as some of the other records. But there's fantastic songs on Shake Your Money Maker. And obviously, you know, a, a lot of people gravitate to and know a lot of bands by their first record. I mean, you know, the casual Pearl Jam people know 10 and, yeah, you know, yeah. so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's not a bad record. It's just there's just so much that followed it that's staggeringly good, you know. And on, on, on Southern Harmony, too, I mean... Outside of Hotel Illness, which is pretty straight up Stones, the rest of that record, I, you can say, okay, here's a pinch of this and a pinch of it. It sounds, they had their sound on Southern Harmony. Yeah, let me get on my soapbox for a second about music journalism that makes me so mad. I, yeah. if people have heard me say it a million times. I think no. it is so lazy to constantly compare the Black Crows to the Faces and the Stones. It's lazy. The first album, yes. Like you said, snippets of the second album... But once you get to Amorca and Three Snakes, they were their own beast. There was nobody else yeah. doing what they were doing. They had their toe dipped into the Grateful Dead. They had their toe dipped into the Stones. And they somehow, that all came together to be what it was. 
And it just frustrates me when I read, oh, you know, it sound like the faces or they sound like, you know, the 72 stones, which those are great compliments, but they move past that pretty quickly, in my opinion. What, what are your thoughts on that? Chris has pointed this out before as, you know, all but the smartest, you know, kind of writers missed on the Humble Pie influence. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Chris is much more similar to Steve Marriott. In the Jealous Again video, he's doing the Rod Stewart hop move and has the, you know, the Keith Richards haircut. But, like, uh, vocally, he's was much similar to Steve Marriott. Um, See, I always thought uh, on that first record in, in early days that, that uh, Chris sounded very much like um, Jeff Beck Group era Rod Stewart. I think, you know, I, 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 that's always, that is what always came across to me, that because his voice was much more raspy at that time. Yeah, yeah, and raw. Uh, yeah, I, I think as much as I would like lather up a lot more for a Southern Harmony, you know, front to back tour. I straight up, I do think that is definitely a amphitheater or music hall kind of uh, show. Um, I was very interested to see who they were going to get for support for this moneymaker tour. You know, ideally, I would have loved to have a new, uh, like a band like Dirty Honey, who is kind of like early Crows meets early Guns N' Roses kind of thing. But I thought they kind of needed an artist to help them sell more tickets than like a a Dirty Honey. Who do you think would be the ideal support for this Moneymaker tour? Because uh, I've heard some stuff behind the scenes on uh, some things, but nothing confirmed. Uh, who do you think would be a legitimate good fit, but help them move tickets and make that tour more successful? You think? I, I would. I would be obliged to say Blackberry Smoke because I think they're up and yeah. coming, and yeah, I think that's who it should be. And plus, they have a history together, so it would be an agreeable situation. Yeah. I really, I'm a latecomer to Blackberry Smoke, but I mean, damn, if their stuff isn't good and, and it fits the vibe that the Crows are trying to put out there. Well, we had we had Britt Turner on here. I told him my ideal thing would be if if the Crows did basically copied the Wheels of Soul and had the Crows do Shake Your Money Maker, have Blackberry Smoke, and have Marcus King open. The jams at the end? Are you kidding me? Be unbelievable. But I agree with you. You know, there were a lot of rumors about Dirty Honey. I think they have the same management. And the one of the members of Dirty Honey was at like the New York show and he was wearing like a yeah. Black Crows T shirt and that got the the chatter. I I agree. Like I think they would be good to have as like, you know, come on, play twenty or twenty five minutes. They're not gonna move the t- even though I mean what they've done is impressive. They're what the first indie band to ever have a number one album or something like that. What they've done is impressive. Is that right? Yeah. What they've done is extremely impressive. But Blackberry Smoke has built this following that is very, very devoted. Yeah. Much like a band from um up the road from you, the drive by truckers. They have yeah. built this like really solid following, and I went and saw them here with Tedeschi Trucks Band, and it got cut short because of a thunderstorm. But there were, I would say, it was probably eight thousand people at this show. Half the people there, I think, were there to see Blackberry Smoke, and they do enough. They change up the set list. They play the kind of obscure, cool covers. They have the same vibe. And then Marcus King, to me, if I'm buying stock in anybody right now and selling it in ten years, it's him, man. I'm doubling down. I think that would be a good idea. And one of the things that we've talked on here that we were so fearful that Live Nation was going to do is try to make this like a 90s package. And it'd be like the Black Crows and like, uh, uh, who sings that song, um, Semi-Charmed Life, um, Third Eye Blind, you know, or uh, uh, like Tonic or, you know, one of those kind of bands, which I don't think that would work. But I Maybe mean, they you, could you, do like... Uh, the Black Crows and the Counting Crows, uh, uh, Double Crows. You know? <laughs> Take that back. Erase that part of the internet. <laughs> but, 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 you're, but you're right. Like they, There's going to have to be somebody added to the ticket. Yeah, and I think Blackberry Smoke is a great one because they do sell tickets. They do play big rooms by themselves. Yeah, put uh, you know, uh, Marcus King, if they could get him as – if they could get Blackberry Smoke as direct support and then Marcus King, I mean that would be – that would sell a lot. All right, so let's ask you this, Matt, and this is kind of why we wanted to have you on here. Step away from being a fan. Okay. If, if you can do that. 10, 15 years from now, when, when you know, they're probably winding it down, 
What do you think is going to be the the real legacy of this band? I think that uh, they, uh, the Crows, and Steve has said this. It's they had their own lane. You know, Chris never shaved his head in 1997. They never did the inevitable grunge album. They never added a DJ mixing in, scratching, you know. Um, but, man, um, I, I would say that, as also as Mr. Gorman has said, you know, and I've said this too, Southern Harmony goes toe-to-toe with any of those fucking iconic 90s rock albums like Nevermind or uh, any of that stuff. You put uh, Southern Harmony... You know, it can punch right with that. I think they will get more and more credit for being their own thing. You know, and, you know, it, like we said, the lazy thing was, you know, Stone's faces, da-da-da, da-da-da, fighting brothers from Georgia. Like, I think they'll get more credit for being sort of iconoclastic. And, you know, they they kept – think of all the – I think another one of their coolest legacies – is think of all the cool bands you learned about from them, or yes. cool songs. Like I knew Pink Floyd, but I didn't know Lucifer Sam until the Crows covered it. I, you know, a, a lot of those artists that I learned, and then I was like, wow, they're awesome. I'll buy their albums. Little like, Feet comes to mind for me. Yeah, I, I think that they'll, their greatest legacy is they they kept the uh, torch going, whatever metaphor you want to use of. You know, this kind of music. It's true. I mean, you know, Steve Gorman himself, I can remember him saying this in the um, in the behind the music thing that, uh, you know, it's just one continuous song and they've just they grabbed their piece of the song. And that's that's really I mean, they're as much as the fabric of the, the, the full story of rock music as as any of the other iconic bands, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. The one thing I would add to that is and and, uh, totally what we're saying there but uh, there definitely has to be a mention of what could have been if they did it reads like steve's book how many stupid fucking moves and you know i've made plenty of stupid fucking moves in my life but like uh you know there's so many examples where pete angelus had great advice for them they made a lot of bad decisions and you know and everything i think Steve recently on his social media, someone asked him if they got offered to play Woodstock 94. Dude, they would have crushed it. They would have crushed Woodstock 94. Oh, definitely. And and there's a lot of bands that got a wave off of that, whether it's Nine Inch Nails or all the Blind Melon. Yep. I mean, and Uh, they, and they, you know, were offered the Guns N' Roses Soundgarden opening slot. Well, um, Matt, we've, uh, We've really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been yes, great. Yes, absolutely. We'll definitely have you on again at, at another point. Maybe and maybe you and I can meet up in Birmingham, have a beer before the show, but uh, we always let our guest pick a playout song. So you pick it. Whatever it is, we'll play it. Uh, we have everything. So, uh, Given my occupation, how about uh, Darling of the Underground Press? You Fantastic. Go, you're going to make Ian happy. All right, everybody, that's uh, that's Matt Wake. We do want to thank him for coming on. Follow him on Twitter. Look for his story in uh, Guitar World on Guns N' Roses. And here's Darling of the Underground Press. Stay tall, everybody.
Thank you.